We ask, Heavenly Father, now that as we look at your word that you would speak to us and help us to understand what was happening back in the early church that prompted them to have this important gathering. And we pray, Lord, that in the process we'd learn lots about what is at the heart of our faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Over the past two weeks, there has been a special event in the life of the Anglican Church called the Synod, the Sydney Synod. And uh, it's basically a huge get-together of about 600 or so people from representatives of all the different Anglican churches in Sydney Diocese. The Sydney Diocese goes all the way from the Hawkesbury in the north down to Ulladulla and then out to the Southern Highlands and even right across over to Lithgow. It's a huge big area and we get together to make decisions about things that affect the life of our little local church here but also the church more widely. Uh, We came together to discuss issues related to gender identity, related to church discipline, related to marriage, related to a whole lot of other stuff I'll talk a little bit more about later on in our service. But it was a big get-together to try and get a common mind on some really important things that affect our daily lives. And it's not something that is a relatively new thing because these sorts of big church get-togethers have been going along for centuries and centuries. And today we're going to look at one in particular that's very famous called the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem. The reason it convened was to try and work out how non-Jewish Christians can fit in with the Jewish Christians. See, remember, Jesus was a Jew. If you looked at him, you'd see he looked like a Jew. He did all the Jewish kind of stuff as a kid. And he grew up to be a Jewish man. And he had around him a whole lot of Jews who were part of his disciples and so on. And basically, his whole mission was firstly for the Jews. Now, we know that most of them didn't accept him, which was tragic. But after that, and as, even as he was there, he was preaching to non-Jews as well. And so you've kind of got these the Jews and the non-Jews. And it was always going to be the case that the non-Jews would be part of the Jews and together they would be the new body of Christ, the, the church. But the issue is, what do they do with all of the Jewish rituals when these non-Jews come to be part of the church? Because it started off as a very Jewish-looking church. And then the non-Jews started to come in as well. So what do they do? Do the non-Jews kind of act like Jews? Or do the Jews stop acting like Jews? How does it all work? That's the big issue here. And it might not seem to be that important to us here today in Australia, but back then it was a huge issue. And I've got to say, if they didn't resolve it properly, it had the possibility of cracking the church down the middle. You'd have the us and the them, whether you're, the us is the Jews and the them are the Gentiles, or the us are the Gentiles and the them are the Jews, it's going to crack the place in half and it will mess it up terribly. It's a big issue that needed to be resolved properly. And it's slightly more important now because, as I've said over the last few weeks, the hub of Christianity has moved from Jerusalem down at the bottom of the map of Middle East, it's moved up to Antioch in Syria, which is sort of at the very bottom of modern-day Turkey, just still on, just inland on the coast there. And so it's moved up there to Antioch of Syria, and Antioch of Syria is really, really multicultural. I mean, there are, there are some practising Jews up there, but there's people from all sorts of walks of life. It really is a truly cosmopolitan city, and Christianity's like that now. 
So you've got the Jewish kind of Christianity down here in Jerusalem and the kind of multicultural Christianity up here in Antioch, which is where a lot of the action's happening now. Can you see that there's got the potential to have a big rift that they've got to sort out? And it's very important to get this worked out. And the issue is not just how do they get on with each other. We're going to see that the issues relate to the very heart of what they believe, the very heart of the gospel of grace. And even with all of this, we can see that the cracks are starting to form. And so chapter 15, verse 1 of Acts, it's our first verse today. It says, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, that's the hub up the north, the cosmopolitan hub, the new hub of Christianity, some men from Judea, so the old school Jewish Christians down here, they arrived and began to teach the believers Unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Here's the conflict. The conflict begins straight away. People from down south have come north and they've said, you've got to do the circumcision thing or you are not saved. Which is a bit, well, it's very dodgy, really. Because what they're saying is that it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is Lord. You've got to believe and you've got to do this other thing as well. Which means that the death of Jesus is not enough. You've got to have the gospel plus circumcision in order to have the whole package of salvation. So what happens here? What are Paul and Barnabas, who are sort of like our, our super evangelists who are racing around the coastline telling people about Jesus and planting churches, what do they feel about this? Well, you might guess. Verse 2a, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. I think that's a polite Bible way of saying that they went the biff. They were absolutely aggro at what has happened here because these guys from the south have come up and said, you're not preaching the full gospel. You've got to actually say all these other things as well. And Paul basically and Barnabas have a big Barney over all of this, Barney the Barnabas. It's a major issue because Paul and Barnabas have gone around risking their lives. Paul has been stoned almost to the point of death. He was certainly unconscious and smashed up. Why? Because of the gospel of grace. And these guys from down south have come up and said, oh, that's not enough. And Paul's like, oh, you're joking, surely. And so now they have a fight. And it highlights the fact that, that we need to know when it is that we agree to disagree with church stuff and when we decide to have conflict. See, we've got to know when to fight for the truth. When do we just say, oh, well, we'll agree to disagree. You like hymns, I like modern songs, or I like, modern, I like hymns, you like modern songs, we'll disagree to differ, or whatever it is. You like a formal church, an informal... We can agree to disagree on some of these things, even whether or not there's a, a millennium or whatever. We can say, well, one of us is right, one of us is wrong. I think let's not get too stressed about it. But there are certain times when we have to fight for the truth. Just yesterday, Anglicans... In north of our diocese, in the Diocese of Newcastle, voted to say that they are wanting to have same-sex blessings within the church, in the Anglican church. And what's more, that they will include clergy within their own diocese who are in same-sex marriages. Now, who cares? Just go with the times. Yes, we do care. Why? Because a person who has that perspective on the Christian faith is a person who essentially has said... 
we're walking away from what the Bible says. We're going to take the bits we like and we're going to leave the bits we don't like. And when you end up doing that, you lose certainty in what the Bible says. And when you do that, you lose certainty for eternity. Uh, This is a matter of life and death. Now, in our church, we welcome people who are from same-sex marriages and so forth to come and hear about Jesus. But we're not going to have people in our church who are from same-sex marriages saying that we don't care that God says that it's the wrong thing to do. We're going to actually say it's a good thing to do. It's an issue that is dividing the church and we've got to actually say we're going to listen to what the Bible says about this because it's a matter of life and death. There's a time to fight for the truth and there's a time for us to say, oh, well, thousand years, millennium, rapture, I don't know, let's agree to disagree. Other times it's say we've got to treat as sin what God sees as sin because then we can understand grace. This is a big biff that was happening here at the start of chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles because it was all to do with something at the heart of grace because they were saying if you don't get circumcised then you can't be saved. It's like really do you think that is the key to being friends with Jesus? And so they've got to fix it up. So the second half of chapter 15 verse 2 says that finally the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. They needed resolution to avoid a split. They needed a resolution to avoid a split. So off they went down to Jerusalem to sort it all out. And along the way, they chatted to some people and the church sent delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. And they told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. They're on their way to have this big, heavy chat sharing with some believers along the way. They said, wow, that's great news. We've got all of these Greeks and others who are joining the church. This is great stuff. And then they arrived down in Jerusalem for the big conference. And we read in verse 4 that when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders, and they reported everything God had told, God had done through them. You can imagine them sitting there sharing about what happened in Syria and Cyprus and Galatia and Cilicia. It's like, this is amazing what's happened. And people are going, wow, this is incredible. And away they go. All these non-Jews, these Gentiles who are now included in our church. Isn't this wonderful? Well, some thought so, but others didn't. Verse 5, but then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Some of the Christians down in Jerusalem who are part of this Pharisee sect, remember the Pharisees were sort of the bad guys earlier on in the life of Jesus. Well, some of them have become friends of Jesus, which is awesome, but they've kept a lot of their old Pharisaical sorts of ways. And these Pharisee believers insisted on circumcision. Now, circumcision is not a little thing for the Jews, you see, because right at the start of the Old Testament, it was very clear that this was a core part of Jewish identity. And so chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 12, from generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. There's a fair point. 
Maybe this verse applies to all of those Gentiles who are coming into the church, the Greeks who are not the Jews. Maybe this verse applies to them. And so this is the question that's before them. What do they do about it? Well, verse 6 we see, back to chapter 15 of Acts, the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. Good. They're going to come and sort it out once and for all. And so they do, and then they tell us all what they decided. Verse 7. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me, Peter, from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. Uh, Basically, he says, it was the plan always to include Gentiles, and Peter was the man who was going to bring the gospel to them. It was always God's plan to include the Gentiles. And it was working. And so in verse 8, we says that God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. At the first Pentecost, on the steps of the temple, God's Holy Spirit came down, whoosh, to the, in Jerusalem. And then when they're in Samaria, the same thing happens, whoosh, as it goes out further. And then they get to Gentile land and they bring the gospel to Cornelius. He's the guy who had this dream, or the, Peter had this dream about the tablecloth with all of the unclean food and stuff, and Peter talks to him, and Cornelius becomes a follower of Jesus, and we get another one, a whoosh, the Holy Spirit comes down. Three kind of Pentecost events, special one-offs, to, to show that God has said, I am including the Gentiles as well as the Sumerians, and as well as also, the, of course, those in Judea and Jerusalem. And with this, he says, verse 9, that God made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Peter makes it very clear at this point, and this is really very important. He says, we are saved by faith alone. He wants to make it very clear. It's all about belief. How do you become a follower of Jesus? It's by believing. My go-to is, chapter is always in, in Luke 23, when, uh, when you've got the thief on the cross, he can do nothing. He's bound up, hanging there next to Jesus, and he turns to him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's like, well, quick, get him circumcised, or quick, get him baptized, or quick, get him to do some good works, or quick, get him to do something. No, he just needed to believe that's all that's necessary. This principle is one that is across the scriptures, and it's vital to get right. And so he then goes on to say, verse 10, with that in mind, why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? He's saying that that throughout the Old Testament, the people of God had this burden upon their shoulders that they were trapped in and they found heavy and hard to walk with, like they were beasts of burdens, prototypes of the tractors, you know, going along there, being dragged, dragged along a heavy plough. And they're saying, that's what we were, and the law was the burden. And finally, in Christ, we've been able to take it off, uh, to give the yoke to Jesus. And now you want to put it on the Gentiles? Really? We couldn't cope. Why do you reckon they will? And why should they? Because the whole thing in all of this is that the Old Testament law points to the fact that we need a saviour. It's a bit depressing in a sense because it keeps saying, 
you're a failure. You failed. You You had a good try, but you failed. And then Christ comes along, and in every way he succeeded. And now if you trust in Jesus, his report card becomes your report card. His success, his perfect 100% ability to keep the law is now yours and mine. What a relief. Jesus has kept the law, so we don't need to. And so if you for a second think that when you get before Jesus and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, well, because I've been a pretty good Christian. I've done lots of good things. I've gone to church pretty regularly. I've given money to the poor. I haven't murdered people and all these. You try and say it's because of the things I've done. Jesus is going to say, oh, you have completely missed the point. It is only by trusting me, Jesus says, because then he says, my track record, my report card, my success in keeping the law is now yours. He kept the law, so we don't need to. It's a freebie. It's grace. It's a gift from God. Verse 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Nobody nobody deserves it, but it is a gift to us, a freebie. And that makes it a great relief, a great relief. Because, friends, I know that when I sin and I come before God and I say, I am sincerely sorry, he says, I forgive you, Jody. And no matter what you've done, when you come towards God and you say, I, I've, got, I've done this thing and I just don't feel I can, I feel too guilty. He says, why are you feeling guilty? I don't see you as guilty in my sight because you've confessed your sin to me and I forgive you. What a relief that is. Well, they've heard that argument from Peter. Barnabas and Paul jump up, verse 12, and just say, well, let me tell you amazing, the amazing miracle. He says, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Uh, that's all we hear about Paul and Barnabas in this section of the deliberations. He got up and said, oh, you're not going to believe what happened. And he told all the stories. And then after that, James jumps up. James is basically, he, he's the brother of Jesus, and uh, he's the guy who has now at this point almost become the main leader in the Jerusalem church. He, he's the guy who wrote that letter of James in the New Testament. And he jumps up after everyone said this stuff and he says, verse 13, when, he's, when they're finished, James stood up and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter, that first speaker for the affirmative, he has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. He starts off saying, this is from God. God first visited the Gentiles through him so that he would take a people for himself. And then James goes on to quote the Bible, the Old Testament Bible, the bit that the Jews had in front of them to prove it. He says, And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, Afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David, and I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. He quotes there from Amos chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 45 to basically say that the Old Testament predicted the Gentile inclusion. It's a reality. It's a thing. The Gentiles are part of us. We've got to work out what to do with it. We don't want to put a burden on them that they can't cope with. 
and we've got to cope with the fact that they're part of us, which is great news. And so verse 19, he says, My judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What a great outcome. He's saying we've got, to, we've got to ease off on burdening the new Gentile Christians with all these rituals and things that we as Jews grew up with. He says the Gentiles should not be burdened. And so what do you expect that they'd say next? I reckon I'd say, well, and therefore, the whole circumcision thing, that's history. And all these rituals and weird stuff that we Jews have grown up doing all our life and rituals and and traditions and things, they can go as well. I reckon that's what I'd expect to see. And so what do we read here? Verse 20, James says, Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals and consuming blood. He doesn't mention circumcision, so that's a really good thing. But he says that the Gentiles need to keep some Jewish rituals. Now, I don't know if you're surprised to read that or not. I kind of think you should be. I'm surprised to read that. I think, hang on a second, you're saying... Don't load them up with all these rituals. And by the way, here's a bit of a shopping list of all the rituals. It's like, really? How does this work? Because James then goes on to say, verse 21, For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. It's a thing we Jews do. And so we don't want to heap up things on the Gentiles that they can't do, but we do want them to keep all of these rituals. What do you reckon Paul does? What do you reckon Barnabas does at this point? You reckon they might go off their rocker? No. Then the apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas called Barnabas and Silas. Basically, they say, everyone says, what a good outcome. Unanimous, it's kind of like in synod. All those in favour, aye, those against, chirp, chirp, carried. Unanimous decision. Everyone's happy about it. And so they then wrote it down as the official letter from Jerusalem. And it goes like this. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we didn't send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we've decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And if you do this, you will do well. Farewell. And that's it. They don't want to give them burdens, but they've got a couple of things they do want them to keep doing. Why? How does this all fit in? I've got to say that when you get the big fat books off the shelf, the commentaries about this, where very nerdy, smart theologians 
try and work out what the answers are. This is one of those kind of head-scratching moments. They're thinking it just seems a bit out of the blue. And I think, as I've done a bit of reading about it this week, it seems to me that the most likely stuff behind all of these traditions they still want them to do is that they consider that keeping the rituals is loving to the Jewish Christians. That the reason they're saying to do these other things is not a salvation issue, that you've got to do it to be saved. That's the circumcision thing. And they've said, no, don't worry about that. But they've said, do these things because it is loving to the Jewish Christians. We could go into all sorts of details about the arguments and where it's from. It seems it's a whole lot of stuff from the Old Testament book of Leviticus and things like that. But I think ultimately it's saying that they need to, as the Jewish Christians hang out with the Gentile Christians, they're going to try and make it easy to be together and not to do something that is going to cause offence, that's going to mess up their togetherness. I mean, a little parallel might be that, that if, if we had some people come into our church who perhaps a large Jewish community moved into Jamboree, a big kind of commune, and they all became followers of Jesus as Messiah, which is awesome. And they come and join us and they say, listen, uh, we want to join your breakfast, but you have bacon and we just can't come because it makes our stomachs turn. What would we do? We wouldn't have bacon. No worries. We'd, we'd do stuff to say we're not going to idolise bacon to the point where we're going to split up the whole place and not show love to you. And there are other parallels you could, you could think about how that works as well. I think, without going too much into it, that's the vibe of what we've got here with these requirements. And so with that in mind, verse 30, we read that the messengers went at once to Antioch with this letter from Jerusalem, back up there to the north, and they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. It's like, this is the big news and we announce to you the outcome. Hold your breath, here we go. And they read it, and there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. See, the Gentiles didn't say, oh, we've got to do all those weird Jewish things. I don't want to do that. They're like, this is great. We who were once far away have been brought near. We are now part of the body of Christ. Jews and Gentiles together. Isn't this amazing? We're happy to do what it takes to show this unity and love for each other. And then verse 32, Judas and Silas, they're the guys who came up from Jerusalem up to Antioch, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed for a while and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. This is lovely, isn't it? Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch and they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. This is a really good outcome because the letter preserved unity in the church. It would have been so easy for the church to have fallen off the cliff at this point, for there to have been the, this big Jewish church and this big Gentile church, and it's like, oh, we don't have anything to do with each other. What a mess. But no, they are one in Christ Jesus, and we have this unity. And so then at that point, Paul says to Barnabas, because these are the, the mates, the two of them together have gone for their multi-year missionary journey. They, they say, well, with this in mind, at this high point, we've got this letter, let's now, verse 36, go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. Oh, this is lovely stuff. But there's a problem. Verse 37, Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly 
since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. He basically says, listen, a couple of years ago, John Mark was part of our gang and he got up and left and deserted us and he did it last time. He's a high risk. He's not coming along. And that's it. Pretty intense, really. We don't know all the details about it, but it's enough to really get up Paul's nose here. And we re- and it reads on that it says, their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. So much for unity. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed down for Cyprus, which is where the first missionary journey was started. And Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care, and he travelled through Syria and Cilicia, up the north bit, strengthening the churches there. Uh, It's a bit messy, really, isn't it? It's a pretty serious blow-up between Paul and Barnabas, these two guys who hung out together so closely for all those years. And the disagreement ultimately led to a separation. I think it's really sad, isn't it? It's sad when you hear about Christians who fight like that. We really want to have peace in these things. But whatever is the case, we see that the great band has now split up and we've got two solo artists who have formed new bands and have gone up to different sections to to double the ministry. So even through through this dummy spit, we've now got double the number of people going around and talking about Jesus, which is probably a good thing, but it's also a sad thing. And then we see, just in the last little bit here, that Paul, as he went north, he went first to Derby and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. Now, Timothy's the guy who's got a couple of bits of the Bible named after him. This is the guy. Timothy's mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. And so now Paul says, I've got this particular guy, there's this guy called Timothy, and, and he says basically he wants to grab Timothy and have him as part of his team his evangelism team. And so we read that Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. And in deference to the Jews of the area, Paul arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Really? The Paul? The the dummy spit Paul, the guy who goes mental over the whole circumcision thing, says, Timothy, you're going to come with me. And Timothy's like, this is great. And Paul says, by the way, (laughs) really? (laughs) It's like, I mean, I'm happy to do that. But theologically, what on earth are you thinking? You've gone and had this massive bust up theologically about circumcision. And you say to me, I need to get circumcised. What's the deal? Has Paul got this kind of weird kind of split personality or something? I don't think so. I think that it shows that Paul has a deep sensitivity for those he serves. See, the whole thing of whether circumcision is a gospel salvation issue is a done deal. The answer is, no, it is not. It's got nothing to do with it. And so with that certainty, he then says, But I don't want anything to happen to be offensive to the people that we're trying to reach out to. And so we're just going to sort this little cultural matter out to make it easier to have Timothy with him. And so he does. (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, 
I think it's an astounding act of love and that one of those things where you say, I will actually do something that is very costly <laughs> for him, uh, very costly, because I believe that the gospel is so important that we will give up things, our freedoms, in order to make it no, make no obstacles to its preaching. The outcome's very positive, verses 5 and 6. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. It's wonderful. It's working. In all of this, as we come to a close, we can see that they had a big discussion about what really mattered. And in the end they came up with a decision about how they should respond to issues of circumcision, for example. And it's a fresh reminder that keeping the truth is a clear is a struggle. It's going to continue to be a struggle in our own Anglican diocese, of, our whole province of Australia, the Anglican Church of Australia. We're going to keep having biff and there's going to be more and more biff and it's going to be divisive and it's going to be very, very sad. Two weeks ago, the Archbishop of Sydney got up at the Synod and said very clearly that if there are those who don't like the Anglican Church as it's always been and you want to change it, don't. Leave it and go and do another church. Go and join a church that has your views. But we just want to get on and tell people about Jesus so that they can go to heaven and be spared hell. We want to get on with evangelism. We don't want to be bickering about this stuff. You want to change it, leave. Now that got reported in the media and all that kind of stuff and fair enough. But the problem is we've got this real issue ahead of us. Keeping the truth clear is a struggle because the truth is ultimately life and death. We can thank God for the Council of Jerusalem and we can thank God for those who continue to contend for the faith because ultimately if we don't get the belief right, we don't get the gospel right. If we don't get the gospel right, we don't have our salvation. Praise God for those who fight for the truth and for us who know the truth that sets us free. Let's pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the courage of those in the Council of Jerusalem who were prepared to confront the big issues to work out how the, the, the Gentiles and the Jews could live together. And we thank you that there has been this great outcome. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us wisdom to know when we can agree to disagree and when we need to disagree. And we pray, Father, that these disagreements happen so we are clear about the life-saving gospel of Jesus, so that it's clear what we preach, so it's clear what we believe, so we can have a clear certainty for eternity. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.